I'm coming this morning from uh, having been on retreat for the last uh, nine days uh, up in the retreat area, uh, a retreat uh, focused on uh, concentration. So I haven't spoken too much. And I wanted to um, speak on this theme, on a theme related to what we explored some in the meditation of this uh, balance of uh, being neither uh, too tight nor too loose, or we might say of uh, doing and being. And I was reflecting on um, the possibility that I would just say, you know, it's a very important theme and in a way it's bringing together the benefits of retreat and of quiet with bringing practice into daily life. We meet, we bring together the upper area of Spirit Rock and the lower area of Spirit Rock and retreat in daily life and just um, Contemplate that for the next half hour in silence. (laughs) And so I contemplated that that would be what I would offer. And for some, that might be better than hearing me talk. (laughs) Uh, But I reflected, and my intuitive sense was that probably a talk is better for many people. <laughs> so that's what I will, will do. <laughs> I'll, I'll talk on that theme. I, I was thinking of it uh, in terms of uh, a title, uh, The Middle Way in Practice between the opposites, between and beyond the opposites. And it's a beautiful unifying theme. It really is more from the wisdom perspective in terms of our uh, uh, um, entirety of our our transformative practice. But I thought to explore some, the nature of that sense of uh, doing and being, of uh, having this, active effort with the quality of resting and apply that, uh, speak about that both uh, generally and then also in terms of uh, how we find that uh, balance in terms of our concentration practice here, just being with the breath in terms of our mindfulness or insight practice in the flow of daily life, and then uh, also uh, most deeply and most most generally. So I think I'll first say a little bit about that theme, or actually even before that, just, just I'm, I feel uh, called some just to speak uh, about the benefits of, uh, of retreat. You know, and my, you know, my um, second option of actually giving a talk in the usual way as opposed to just talking for a minute or two and then letting you contemplate for half an hour, which some of you are probably thinking, that would have been better. (laughs) And you're having, you're noticing some aversion perhaps. Uh, But um, we have tools for that. Uh, But the, uh, yeah, with that that, uh, second option, of speaking longer as opposed to just briefly, I'm actually going to be talking for the longest that I've spoken in uh, 10 days. I'm going to trust that the mechanisms will work. Okay. So, uh, but I was, I was just reflecting some on the value and importance of retreat because uh, even though I teach retreats a lot and many of the Spirit Rock teachers Teach, teach a lot of retreats in a given year, it's less frequent that I have a sustained number of days for personal retreat. Uh, 
and it was um, it was great, and especially to do one here, I was very uh, appreciative and grateful for the existence of Spirit Rock in ways that I think I am in maybe lesser degrees being a teacher. Maybe it's more of a take it for granted because I'm here a lot. I'm here maybe including my own retreats, sometimes 80 or 100 days a year, so I'm here a lot. But being on retreat, there is more of that sense of the gratitude for uh, what we offer. to, and, and particularly to be on retreat, it has that room for uh, letting go of busyness, and which is so, uh, I think we long for that. You know, letting go of the busyness, the details, the emails, etc. And of course, they some you know we can let go of that to some extent. They follow us along, right? You know, on retreat or here, but having that opportunity to let go and over the days they recede, and that makes possible um, the depth being more accessible. And the the depths of our being, sometimes there's material that's uh, difficult or painful, and sometimes it's also opening to to beautiful aspects of the depths, maybe a sense of peace or stillness that is uh, more than we usually experience. Sometimes the mysterious appears. I had a, a very, very striking a dream, which was almost, you know, I, w- I would call it archetypal of the kind that sometimes occur in, in retreats that really uh, can be like, uh, for me, a guide for the next period of time. And this happens, of course, you know, those kind of dreams can happen in daily life, but often retreats and the stillness uh, open us up in that way. And for me, they all also are almost almost all the time, uh, kind of counsels to myself to have more simplicity in my own life and to have more, um, more clarity about priorities. And so one practice for those of us who do retreats, for some of us we haven't done retreats even a few days, it's, it's a wonderful experience. It can be challenging at times, of course, uh, but it can be a wonderful practice to know uh, when is my next retreat. I urge that of people I, I uh, uh, guide. When is my next retreat? Because you know, of, of whatever nature. Sometimes, and again, it could be a retreat that's at a retreat center. Some, for some of us, it could be you know four days of silence among the redwoods, you know, and camping could take different forms. So the theme that I wanted to explore is this balance, we can call it in so many different ways, this balance of doing and being, of effort and resting, of of acting, in a strong, clear way, and letting go, letting be. We can describe it in all sorts of ways. It could be talked about as uh, the balance of being active and being receptive. It's really pointing to what I think is a kind of archetypal balance that we can find in our lives, and that really can give a, 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 just in that single understanding, can give a guide for all the areas of our lives. And I think that's one reason that the whole of the path, uh, as outlined by the Buddha, is called the middle way. And I'll say more about that in a moment. Uh, But we also find this in all sorts of other traditions, this sense of balance, of finding the golden mean, many, many traditions, spiritual, ethical, and so forth, that there's this, uh, this, this guide. And what I want to do is to say some about the general principle and then try to show how it actually is very practical uh, in our meditation and in our uh, active lives in the world. 
and how a lot of it is really this asking of the question, how am I working with this balance now? Some of it might relate to, on this balance, do I tend more to be a doer or a beer? Do I tend more to emphasize active effort or more the resting and the letting go? Now, for many of us, we tend to emphasize the doing. Anyone relate to that? The doing side of things. I think our culture certainly emphasizes that. Sometimes I say that uh, for many of us, we'd rather complete our to-do list than reach awakening. Check it out. <laughs> you know, there's something, and it's a culture. We're a culture of doers, and you know that has its wonderful aspects. But we, we, in a sense, we can be uh, unbalanced in a certain way. I think it's also very much related to gender. You know, it's uh, the often the doing is identified more with masculine, or with in, in sort of traditional gender models. There is that more active, which is sometimes called more masculine. Masculine being more equality that can be there for both biological men or women and so forth. And there, there has been historically, I think, a certain hardened distinction, which has been you know, relaxed a lot the last 20 to 40 years uh, between, between the masculine and feminine. And uh, I think a lot of what we're talking about has those cultural... Uh, resonances with that issue. And a lot of what we've been seeing is a shift towards, one of it could be called more of a valuing of the feminine, the receptive, the, uh, um, I mean, uh, what I'm calling the, the receptive, the restful, the letting go, the letting be, and balancing that more with the active. I know my own conditioning has been very much to be a doer. And again, again, many of us, men or women, might, might find that. Uh, I should say, I was thinking also about this gender balance, and this is very related, so it's related to cultural issues and gender questions. I think it's very interesting now, there are a lot, there's a lot of sense in the contemporary world of those, that rigid sense of gender relaxing a lot. You know, particularly among younger people, there's a sense also of what's sometimes called gender nonconformity. We have that now in our Spirit Rock retreat uh, forums. You can indicate that as one's preferred gender, which does echo with you know other pre-modern cultures often had a much more fluid sense of gender. I remember studying indigenous cultures that a shaman often uh, would, would be understand, understood as, as um, having a, th- a third gender. It's quite interesting. Anyway, there's a lot there, and this will echo with this theme of the active and the receptive and what I'm, what I'm talking about. And so there's, there's this way that it's a very large, powerful uh, uh, principle that can really, in its simplicity, be a great guide for our lives and our practice. I want to you know, talk more, get more generally a little bit longer, and then try to make it very practical in terms of our meditation and our, and our lives. Ultimately, a lot of traditions point towards the balance of this active and receptive. One of the traditions that does this beautifully is the Taoist tradition coming out of China. And uh, some of you who have read Lao Tzu or Chuang Tzu uh, know that emphasis. There's a concept in Chinese of Wu Wei, which is sometimes translated as non-action, but really means action that is imbued with rest. And it's an ideal, and we will find that in a lot of people. You can find that in Gandhi. You can find that in a lot of other uh, traditions, Buddhist tradition as well. This is from Chuang Tzu. This is like from, uh, what, uh, almost uh, 24, 2500 years ago. The non-action, the wu-wei of the wise person, is not inaction. It is not studied. It is not shaken by anything The sage is quiet because of not being moved, not because of willing to be quiet. 
And sometimes this uh, takes the form of uh, a quality of a paradox that we bring together uh, doing and being. And the lang- and it's really to see if we're caught in one of the opposites. Am I too much emphasizing one emphasis, one side, emphasizing the, the doing? Or in meditation it could be, am I emphasizing the effort, the striving? Or am I a little bit too relaxed, you know, in my meditation? Um, In the, in the Buddhist tradition, this is often expressed in the middle way. Let me say a word about that, but let me, let me invite you, even as you're listening to this talk, to see if you can practice the combination or the integration of the doing and the being. So you might, from a more active perspective, be listening to my words, seeing what the meaning is, reflecting, uh, but also, can I just have a restful quality so I stay restful in my body? You might have 20% or 30% or 50% of your attention just being receptive with the body as you listen and have 50% listening to the words. Really combining, as you listen, that quality of receptivity and more activity. Can you do that in listening? Can you bring that into interaction and being with others, that, that kind of balance? That's one way it gets expressed. And so for the historical Buddha, one of the reasons that the Buddha came to this middle way is that his first part of his quest, after he left his own home in search of awakening, he followed, we might say, more of a path of effort and doing. He studied with some of the great teachers of concentration and he really applied himself, really did that meditation, concentrated, strove, even our word concentration, we were just having a concentration retreat and we were saying a lot that that word actually is not a great translation because it implies like summoning my will and focusing and, you know, like we do with a, a, you know, a little, lens, we can focus enough so we start a fire, <laughs> you know? And, and when in reality concentration is more of a gathering and a collecting, it has its receptive aspect. But the Buddha had this very active, we could say he took a, a path that was more hyper-masculine, right? The doing, the striving, you know, he, he performed austerities, he ate very little, he was an ascetic all following this path, and one after another, he came to the conclusion that in some way they were out of balance. They weren't working for him. And then then he had this moment, after doing these ascetic practices for six years, when he was on the bank of a river. And he was very emaciated. He had been doing a practice of eating very little. And he was lying there and it said that a a milkmaid came up to him and seeing him apparently hungry, emaciated, offered him porridge. For him to accept that would have gone against his vows. But something intuitively in him said, I am out of balance, striving too much. And he said, let me take this nourishment. You know, and my, my friend and colleague John Travis interprets this as, in a way, moving from that hyper-masculine and accepting the nourishment of the feminine. So again, we can use these words you know, with quotation marks and some care, but accepting that nourishment of the feminine, and it was very interesting, that balancing led him in a very short time to a different way of practice, which in a quite a a short time led to his awakening. That balancing of effort, we could say, of the masculine and feminine led to an awakening. Led in, the, in that way. 
And he came back and said that I teach a way that is free of the opposites. And so the middle way isn't a compromise between the opposites. It's actually going beyond them. Maybe to where, and I'll keep on bringing up this theme, where as we practice more deeply, the doing is merged with, with rest. Where the effort is connected with letting be, letting go. Which is the direction of our practice, whether in meditation or in action in daily life. And this is what he said, illustrating the middle way. These two extremes should not be followed without veering towards either of the extremes. And he meant one of a series of extremes. He, he talked about it in different ways. Without veering towards either of these extremes, the Tathagata, which was his name for himself, the thus gone, has awakened to the middle way, which gives rise to vision which gives rise to knowledge, which leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment. So we can see this manifest now in a a quite practical way in our meditation, in our everyday action. And again, we can, as we explore these more practical ways to bring this balance into being, we want to ask, what makes this balance hard? Where are my tendencies? Now, he's mentioning that I have really been trained as a doer. You know, and so when I first started meditating, I was very disciplined, committed, did really, very well. And it was a little bit harder to just relax. And I think I was more on the doing side. That was certainly, I think, my strong cultural conditioning, partly as a man, also in my family, there, you know, we're, we're good doers and planners. You know, my sister has an advanced degree in planning uh, <laughs> and is employed as a planner with Kaiser, which is great, you know, and tremendous virtues of good planning. But sometimes in our family, I don't think it's happened recently, but I would, I would note, and my mom is here, she can check out whether this is true, um, but I would sometimes note that when we first get together, like have a kind of gathering of the family, the first thing we would do before even asking ourselves, how are you, we would plan when we were next going to get together. (laughs) So have those qualities of planning and doing. And so for me, a lot of my practice in meditation and in life, I think, has been rebalancing. It's been finding how can I keep the virtues of doing and good planning and um, with more rest, letting go, spontaneity. And I remember once, just to give an example of this, I remember once I had a, a teacher, Christopher Titmus, who gave me instruction on a retreat. He said, uh, for this retreat, don't do anything. <laughs> don't even meditate. I want you to stay. Um, don't be distracted, but don't do anything. And, uh, and he said, well, he also said, and, and be aware of the absolute. And he didn't explain what he meant by that, but you could interpret that in different ways. So anyway, so that was his instruction. And so there I was, and I was really getting into not doing. <laughs> and really finding a lot of insight and relaxing. And, but then I remember there was one moment, several days in the retreat, I was really, oh, this not doing is so cool. And then I found myself saying, I'm really doing, not doing really well. <laughs> and, and I did, just like you, I laughed when I came to that insight because it was so, oh, oh there's, the, I guess, the, you know, there's still some imbalance there. Like the, the doer is appropriating non-doing as the thing. Okay, I am doing non-doing. So it was really, it was interesting. So as we practice like this, you'll, you'll notice that, you know, your version of that is pretty cool. So, um, so concentration uh, practice, which we've just been doing for this time, it, or we could say uh, in being with, just with the breath, how do I get my mind to settle? How do I work just with being with the breath in meditation? Uh, and again, this balance of effort and relaxation is key to concentration. And it's not easy. You know, personally, I had a lot of challenges doing concentration practice, because often I would, I would be quite um, 
discipline, get pretty concentrated, but there'd be more of the effort or sometimes over-effort or striving. And a lot of the learning has been, how can I also rest and be relaxed and so forth? And actually to go deeper with the concentration, one has to learn how to relax a certain, a certain amount of the, of the time. And uh, traditionally, it was often understood, can I be with the breath or the primary object and be neither too tight nor too loose, much as in the instructions during the meditation. Sometimes the analogy was given to a musical instrument. Can I be like the lute, with the strings have to be neither too, t- not, neither too tight nor too loose. Without that balance, no sound, or not a, not a good sound. And that is often an analogy for our meditation practice. As we can ask ourselves, am I too tight, too loose? And we'll each have our tendencies, generally, and then maybe in a given uh, period of time. How can I develop a relaxed but persistent attention? Not easy, right? And uh, my colleague, Philip Moffat, who was teaching the, uh, one of the teachers for the concentration retreat, he has a wonderful kind of analogy uh, sort of almost like an exercise uh, that can illustrate that, that sense of how do we come to relaxed attention. He said, imagine that your, your, put, let your hand be, uh, maybe your left hand be the breath and your right hand be your attention. Okay, you can, you can do this right now. Let your left hand be the breath and your right hand be the attention. And we can see how, do, how, do, how does my attention relate to the breath. Sometimes it's like one possibility, which isn't so balanced, is the right hand just goes and grabs the breath, right? Okay, that's one, one option. And we, okay, see what that feels like. Just grabbing, okay? That's not, that's, that you're, one can be attentive, but it's, it's overly tight, right? Another option is that the, the, the attention, try this one now, the attention just comes and it actually bounces off <laughs> the breath. You kind of feel the breath for a moment, and then you're off to thinking about lunch. Right? And okay, do that one. <laughs> the, the, the attention just bounces off the breath and goes somewhere, right? You can, you can think of other, you know, other kinds of, of, op- of options. Uh, it squeezes too hard. It presses, you know, and so the breath gets very tight. And... Uh, it could also be that the, the attention just never really gets to the breath. It kind of hovers and goes here, goes flying in the air. <laughs> Try that one. See what that, how much is that? Your meditation like that. Okay. Yes, I know that the breath, the two hands, it's really good for them to come together, but they're, they're not doing that. And the, <laughs> the right hand's kind of going to the left, going to the right, up in the air. And then what would be that sense of restful attention? of where we're actually with the breath, let the right hand rest in a relaxed way, not too tight, not too loose, with the left hand or the breath. And see what that feels like. What are the qualities there? It's there, it's restful, but it's not too tight. And we can use this image and can even bring this exercise to your meditation and just use it as almost like a diagnostic tool for how the meditation is. And I, I, love, I love that kind of the physical embodiment. It kind of, some of us do very well with that or with, you know, with that sense of an image. And there's a similar way in which our mindfulness practice can also be guided by that sense of balance. That our, again, our mindfulness practice, we want to connect with the object. It can be with the breath or it could be with physical sensations. How can I be, if I'm being attentive of body sensations, and let's say they're not so pleasant or comfortable, how can I have a relaxed attention with that? It's not easy, right? Part of our practice is sometimes being mindful and present with what's uncomfortable. Could be a a physical sensation, could be uh, an emotion. You know, maybe there's some sadness or there's some irritation. Can I be with that 
without either trying to, you know, almost with the, still the image of the hands, almost in the, the attention saying, okay, go away, go away, bad sensation, go away, emotion, I don't like you, let's go back to this piece, right? And so uh, with the mindfulness, we need that balance, and we get, we get in a way tested with the more uh, challenging kinds of experiences. Can I have, until you might try when there's some challenging experience in meditation, and maybe not the most challenging, but a little bit challenging. Maybe you're sitting there and there's a little bit of sensation in the back. Can I have that restful attention even with that? Can I, can I do that? Another way that this um, uh, balance of doing and being or active and receptive plays out in mindfulness practice is that there are actually several ways that we practice mindfulness. There is, there's a more active aspect of mindfulness, which is the saying, okay, what's happening? We might be using noting. Is there planning? Is there uh, remembering? What's going on? Is there sensation? And I can, part of that uh, active aspect of meditation is naming what's happening, seeing clearly. That's active, right? It's saying, okay, let me really note that. And then there's an active aspect to connecting with the object. Let me really be with that more fully. There's something that's more active there. And then there's a receptive aspect where we, where we can just, okay, let me just be with this. Maybe like in the, the back sensation. Let me just be with this. Or maybe we're just with the breath in an easy way. Let me just be present. Let me be more receptive to just the flow of experience, to the, to the flow of being present. And my colleague, Gil Fronsdale, um, who's a teacher at Spirit Rock and also down in Redwood City, he calls these two aspects of mindfulness paddling and floating, like in the images of being on the water. And sometimes we paddle, we're more active. We need to paddle, okay, what's happening? Let me bring the mindfulness to the object. Let me be, bring a little more activity. And sometimes we're more floating. We're just on the water and just enjoying being present and so forth. So how do we then uh, bring this into action and and daily life, this same balance? And again, I think for each of these areas, we want to first know what are my tendencies? What are my personal tendencies? Do I incline more on the one side or the other in general? And then right now, which side am I inclined on? We can apply that to our meditation. Where do I need to, where do I need to go? How do I need to be balanced? And we can also see how this plays out in daily life. As, as I mentioned, I think my own conditioning is to be more of a doer. And, and one of my retreat practices, which I love, is that I come down uh, typically twice a day to a bench that's in the courtyard uh, right out the the front doors. And we have a bench for uh, my father who died about almost 10 years ago. And I sit on the bench and I commune with my father. I'm not sure what actually happens, but it feels like I'm talking with him. And um, uh, it's like uh, conversations or talking with my father, Simon. And he usually, we, we say, hi, how are you doing, you know, and so forth. And, and we connect, and he usually gives me a few words of guidance. And I, um, you know, and I write them down, and I remember them. And I, I have, have them here for the last uh, nine or ten days. So I thought I'd just read them, but for me, they're almost always on the side of more that uh, resting, uh, not, not, the, not the efforting. You know, and it's, it gives me a guide for the day. So here are some, here are some, I'll just go through these kind of arbitrarily from the last uh, eight or nine days. Trust yourself. You know what to do. Later that day, keep relaxing. Don't rush. That in itself can be a great guide during the day. Don't rush. 
you know, and I, I find that just, you know, even some some of you, I, I believe, are retired. Isn't there some of the same habits in retirement of being busy, having a long to-do list? I won't ask for a show of hands there, but isn't that interesting, right? But still, who, who could have thought that retirement would be so busy? <laughs> Does anyone relate to that? You can just nod your head. Yeah, yeah. So, so don't rush helps me a lot. Here are some others. Uh, you know what to do. Bring in some kindness. It has this quality, right, of, of tempering sometimes the doing. Here are some others. Take it easy. No pressure. Kindness. Isn't it nice to get guidance like that for, for a day? Yeah. No pushing. Keep going. Enjoy. And then he says, you're doing great. <laughs> Just continue. Enjoy. Keep going, keep open, don't worry. I think from, I'm trying to remember what it was for this morning. It was, uh, um, I think, let the, let the energy carry you and remember gratitude. Those, those are two of them. So, this, um, that's kind of like a personal example, but that we can also have this sense of balance in terms of guiding our action. And there are many traditions which have again pointed to this, and it can be talked about in different ways. It's that combination of, of action and letting go. You know, again, it's very prominent in the Taoist tradition. It's there in the uh, Hindu tradition as the teaching of action without attachment to the fruits of one's action. There's a sense that you act fully, but then after you've acted, you let go of the results. And this was actually the principle which motivated Gandhi. He said, I want to have very clear goals and intentions and act fully, but once I act, I release something. Can you sense that balance of what we're talking about there? As a principle for action, and very strong action, like to... Um, bring independence to India was a guiding principle, right? And you can find that in a lot of spiritually grounded social activists. You can find that. Um, T.S. Eliot said it this way uh, in his poetry. He said, and listen for this balance. He said, ours is in the trying. The rest is not our business. Ours is in the trying, the rest is not our business. And this is from a contemporary ecological activist, Vandana Shiva. Some of you may know her work uh, from India, a scientist and an activist. She says, I do not allow myself to be overcome by hopelessness, no matter how tough the situation. I believe that if you just do your little bit without thinking of the bigness of what you stand against, if you turn to the enlargement of your own capacities just that in itself creates new potential. And I've learned from the Bhagavad Gita and other teachings of our culture. The Bhagavad Gita is that text which outlines this theme of action without attachment to the fruits of one's action. I've learned from these teachings to detach myself from the results of what I do because those are not in my hands. The context is not in your control, but your commitment is yours to make. And you can make the deepest commitment with a total detachment about where it will take you. This isn't easy, I should say. <laughs> you will want it to lead to a better world and you shape your actions and take full responsibility for them, but then you have detachment. And that combination of deep passion and deep detachment allows me always to take on the, most, the next challenge because I don't cripple myself. I don't tie myself in knots. I function like a free being. I think getting that freedom is a social duty because I think we owe it to each other not to burden each other with prescription and demands. I think what we owe each other is a celebration of life and to replace fear and hopelessness with fearlessness and joy. And so we find, we find that sense of balance. We find it in multiple traditions. I could mention many traditions where that sense of balance, of fullness, of acting,
but a quality of letting go as well, and a quality of rest in the action. This is again from the, from the Taoist tradition. One in whom the Tao acts without impediment harms no other being by one's actions, yet does not know oneself to be kind or gentle. One does not bother with one's own interests, but does not despise others who do. One is not always looking for right and wrong. The ancients said, therefore, the person of Tao remains unknown. Perfect virtue produces nothing. No self is true self, and the greatest one is nobody, who's integrated these, these qualities together. In the Buddhist tradition, this is talked about as having balance with what are called the eight worldly conditions. Being having a balance when there's pleasure or pain, gain or loss, fame or disrepute, and uh, what did I say? Gain or loss, did I say that? What's the fourth? Uh, um, I don't know, there's a, there's a fourth. <laughs> uh, blame, you know. Uh, blame or, or so I call it fame or disrepute, pleasure and pain, gain or loss, and what? Okay, I don't know. This is retreat mind. Okay, uh, it'll probably occur. And then let me let me finish by um, let me finish by saying that oh, this uh, sense of balance takes us potentially to the depths the depth of our being, that there is a quality of our being which combines or integrates rest with deep uh, insight, with energy, with an effort which is no effort. I think that's what Chang Su was talking about. There's, there's a deep effort which after a while is, is no effort. You can liken this to how a very superb athlete puts out huge amounts of effort, but it doesn't feel effortful. Same thing with a professional level musician. Can be tremendous level of effort, but it doesn't feel like effort. It feels just like spontaneous expression. And we can find this also in the depths of our being spiritually. There's a quality, as we go deeper, there's a quality of our awareness in which stillness and movement, receptivity and activity are joined, where the awareness goes uh, deeper and deeper, and where, in a sense, we go beyond the opposites of doing and not doing. The quality of awareness which has a profound sense of energy, but also a profound sense of stillness. There's a passage from um, Achan Cha, which I like a lot. Maybe I'll see if I want to end with this. Yeah, I think so. There's a quality of of awareness. This is this is from Achan Cha, who is. Uh, a primary teacher for our lineage from Thailand, uh, who died about uh, a little less than 25 years ago, pointing to the deep nature of our being, the deep nature of our mind. He has the sense that it's beyond the dualities. It has both stillness and movement. It has both receptivity and activity. And I think it points to that middle way beyond the extremes. About this mind, he says, in truth there is really nothing wrong with it. It is intrinsically pure. Within itself it's already peaceful. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. As I say this, listen for this part of yourself which has this deep stillness. And in his teaching he always separated the stillness of the depths of our being from the particular contents of our experience. The contents come and go, but there's something, there's a kind of deep knowing that doesn't come and go. 
And that distinction is crucial for our practice. And when we're in that deep place, we're really beyond the doing and being. And there's some, some deep stillness in which there's movement, there's stillness, and they become connected. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. The real mind doesn't have anything to it. It is simply an aspect of nature. It becomes peaceful or agitated because moods deceive it. The untrained mind is stupid. Sense impressions come and trick it into happiness, suffering, gladness, and sorrow. But the mind's true nature is none of these things. That gladness or sadness is not the mind, but only a mood coming to deceive us. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things. It forgets itself. Then we think that it is who we are, that who is upset or at ease or whatever. But really this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful, really peaceful, just like a leaf which is still as long as no wind blows. If a wind comes up, the leaf flutters. The fluttering is due to the wind. The fluttering is due to these sense impressions. The mind follows them. If it doesn't follow them, it doesn't flutter. If we know fully the true nature of sense impressions, we will be unmoved. Our practice is simply to see the original mind. We must train the mind to know those sense impressions and not get lost to them, to make it peaceful. Just this is, this aim, is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. To touch that place which some poets and some sages talk as the still point between the opposites where there's this balance of um, stillness and movement, receptivity and activity. It's a balance, but in a way it's beyond the opposites. And it's a place of uh, freedom. The point of our practice is to start to touch that, touch that more and more, and have it come out into one's being and action. And so that one's daily activities and life and action increasingly have that qualities of the uh, primordial mind, quality of mind. have a little bit of time if there are any uh, reflections or um, insights or uh, questions and we'll use the mic uh, so we so everyone can hear it could just be it could be a reflection or a spontaneous poem <laughs> It could be about any sense of this uh, core principle, how we apply it to our meditation, how we apply it to bring it into daily life. And again, I think in terms of practice, the two, the two things, maybe three things are be aware of that principle, have a general sense uh, um, of where I tend to be uh, unbalanced, you know, I'm more of a doer in, in all sorts of activities. And then keep asking the question, where am I right now? You know, move, do I move in this direction or that direction? Achan Cha said that the entirety of his practice was seeing people walking on a path. On the left side of the path, there was a ditch. On the right side of the path, there was a ditch. He just, he just saw where someone was and said, said to some people, hey, you, go left. Watch out for the ditch on the right. Hey, you, go right. Look for the ditch on the left. And that was practice. And we can do that ourselves. So that's how we practice. Please. Yeah. Now we have some hands. Okay. Um, I find it difficult to... So as a former overaction type A, that's not anymore. But sometimes I find it difficult to know 
when am I using the supposed balance kind of as an excuse yeah. to let, and this is particularly true with things that I might be doing as a volunteer. Right. Yeah, so when, when am I, because uh, we, can, we can, as it were, err on both sides, right? Yeah. And we can be using the image of the, the lute or the musical instrument. We can be too tight or too loose, and we can use this teaching as a reason to, when I used to be maybe too tight, now I get too loose. And, you know, it's a continual exploration. I think if we keep asking the question, get some feedback from others, and see that, and just know that there are going to be, you know, many potential ways we get imbalanced. We can, as it were, overcorrect, right? And so, and, and so, just to keep looking for it, not to strive for perfection, but just to say, you know, it's almost like we don't need to get it all together. We just need to know, right now, a little bit more to the left, a little bit more to the right, and that's all we need, you know, and and. Over time, and particularly with some feedback and, you know, maybe from teachers or mentors and so forth, I think we, we, uh, we move towards that middle of the path and avoid the ditches. Yeah. Okay. Let, we, let's go to the two in the middle and then... And five. Yeah, no, no, you're fine now. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> but I was saying, yes, um, after. Yeah. I just wanted to say that I appreciate your topic today because I really resonate with it. When I first started meditating, I gave myself headaches every time I did it. And they'd last and last. And finally, it took a long time, but I'm a little slow. (laughs) But at a certain point, I thought, wait a minute, what's wrong with this picture? This this doesn't feel right. Right. So, but I, I still... I'm still, I I love the visual, the hand visual. I'm still having a lot of trouble just landing in the resting place and not just being up here or slapping it and grabbing it. Yeah. And in daily life. Yeah. It's it's the practice for me. Yeah, I think it's just a continual practice. And how many people can relate that it's hard to just land in that resting place? How many can relate to that? Yeah. And... It, it's, um, we have some deep condition, conditioning on these issues, all of us. And so it takes time, but just to stay with it. And in, in that context, retreats can sometimes be quite helpful because you, get, you can have a very focused training on, the, on these concerns. It can be very helpful. Please. Yeah. Is this also related to that state where nothing is happening? Not, the not doing. Yeah. Is that related to the state where you see that nothing is happening? Yeah, so the question is, this this is what I'm talking about. Could it be related to a state where one has a sense that nothing is happening? And it could be a meditative state or a state in daily life. Uh, it could be. Yeah, I think it could be. There, you know, the, um, in many of the traditions, the Taoists, the Buddhists, uh, multiple traditions, the Hindu traditions, I think Western traditions as well, there is that sense that the, you know, the, in Taoist tradition it said that the, the one who has developed this skill um, in many contexts may have a sense of not doing so much. You know, and they include even being a leader. You know, some of you may remember the, the, the the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu, and has lines in it where it says, the leader acts, actually does nothing, and the people think that he has done something or she has done something. But the lead, a skillful leader often does very little or nothing. Do you know that? You know, maybe a skillful leader is more like a orchestra conductor. Right? And there's a way in which the, there's a quality of doing that is actually subtle and involves a lot of letting go. And so it can feel like that. It can, we can also have that experience in meditation of actually having uh, the vast amount of our experience be not really connected with doing. That can be an experience in meditation. So, you know, this is what we'll partly explore in this teaching on anatta or not-self, there can be a sense, part of what we can open up to in meditation is just 
have the doer temporarily recede and just we watch experience unfolding in a kind of choiceless awareness and there's a sense like, gosh, this is all happening and I'm not doing so much. And a lot of psychologists say that a remarkable amount of our experience is like that. You know, without so much active doing, it's just occurring. So, and there are a lot of other ways we can explore that, you know, in meditation, but also in daily life. Yeah. And e- even, even our doing can have a sense of uh, more of coming with, with... It's like we, we use language like being with the flow. Right, where it's, it's almost, it's, there's less of a conscious doing, I will do this, and more, more, maybe more like a dance. Like a lot of these images are very helpful, a dance, being with the flow, they give a sense of it's not me here separate doing, applying my will to reality. That, that's another way this gets expressed. I think you had, uh, see, we had, I have three more hands, maybe we'll limit it to that. You, yeah, okay, please. And then two more here. Please. First of all, gratitude. This is the best I've ever heard you speak. And especially, I've probably missed your better ones, though. (laughs) And also that you emphasize that the self-deprivation is really the real abundance. That self? That self-deprivation actually leads to the center of paradox, which is the real abundance. And that the grasping at the extremes, which we think is the real intensity, is the real deprivation. It's that when you get in the middle, you get in the zone. Yeah. And the athletes and the pianists all, will all say that suddenly all the training and all the experience becomes effortless. Yeah, yeah there's that quality of effortlessness. And whatever language we use, you know, we have to be, I think, a little careful about talking about self-deprivation, because that can... That can, that can sound like repression, which wasn't your spirit, right, at all. But, but we have to be a little careful. Maybe we would say not sort of getting hooked into the self or into the, the will or into that, you know. Is that, is that making some sense? I, I, I want to be a little careful with the language, but I think what you're pointing to is exactly what I'm saying. Okay, we have here and, and, and last one. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I was reflecting while you were speaking, I, I generally need a really strong image of something to get me to get to the middle. Yeah. And so I just think of living and dying. Yeah. And when I think of those opposites, it helps me to balance what I'm doing while I'm living. Yeah. And it's pretty strong and profound. Yeah, so, so it's really like using this pair of opposites and it can be very personal, I think, and you know we will use language differently, and and it's just that sense that helps you to find more of a balance, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Uh, and so yeah, we want to use the language, or like some of us might work with that gesture, that uh, that might be the helpful way uh, to see, or you know, for the image of the two ditches on either side, and say, oh, watch out for that ditch, watch out for that one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. And maybe the last one. Where are you? Yeah. Could you um, talk about the relating not doing to uh, no self? Could I relate not doing to no self? Um, I think it's related, maybe it was, uh, Sarah's your point also. I think it's related to that and several of the comments and um, you know, I prefer the translation of not-self, because no-self can be confusing. It's a very confusing teaching for Westerners in a culture of individualism. Okay, so, um, so how can I briefly, given the time, <laughs> relate, uh, uh, what word did you say, not-doing? Not-doing not self. Again, if you look at the Taoist teachings, they work with this a lot. And they, you heard in that passage I read, there's that sense of Wu Wei, or this action which is non-action, uh, which isn't, you know, or it could be with the musician or the athlete, this fullness of effort, but which doesn't involve will, or it's just a natural flow, right? That there's, there's that sense of 
uh, there's actually not much sense of self there. And we've looked at that as we've explored the teaching of anatta or not-self, that one of the ways that we can access this is by looking for what are called these flow experiences, as uh, exemplified by the musician or teacher, you know, where I go back to, my mom was a musician, is a musician, and has this poem where she says, you know, uh, when you're playing music, you want to let yourself be taken over by the music. And if you have a sense of self there, it's not so good. You know, and you, you let yourself be taken over, and so you have to, there has to be this uh, emptying out of the, of the self. Maybe this is what we're, you're meaning by self-deprivation. You know, this emptying out of the self, uh, and it's a practice. And so it can be something we look at. And again, it's going back to your, your point, we, we can err on different sides with this. You know, and so there's a, there are a lot of ways we can veer towards the ditch as we practice this. You know, we can, we can uh, if we've been trained as doers, we can suddenly get too slack and we go into the ditch on the right. Or we can emphasize not self, but we don't bring in enough energy. We go towards another ditch. You know, so there are all sorts of ditches here and it's an ongoing practice, uh, but that the, the sense of, people use different language. The Taoist tradition uses a sense of not of not doing, and the Hindu tradition says action without attachment to the fruits of one's action. So the language is going to be different, and in Buddhist tradition, it's like action uh, without uh, being caught by pleasure or pain, uh, gain or loss, um, fame or disrepute, or uh, <laughs> what is that? Anyone? Anyone know? I was hoping that it would spontaneously come, the missing pair, but... Uh, um. Basically, yeah, basically like uh, uh, praise or blame, I think that's the word, yeah, praise or blame. Um, and so can we act? And when we look, where do I get caught on one side? You know, maybe I get, you know, I can act fully, but I get caught by praise or I get caught by blame. It takes me towards the ditch. Or do I get, do I get caught in my action by needing it to go well? What do I do when things don't go well? Do I still keep that balance? And so those eight conditions are like something to look out for because those are where we get tested, right? That's where I get tested my balance. So you want to keep an eye out for those eight worldly conditions. You know, when I get, when there's praise or blame, when there's pleasure or pain, when there's gain or loss, when I look good or don't look good, right? That's where we will tend to be into, uh, fall into balance. And it's also correlated with where there's going to be more of what I call a thicker sense of self, right? Okay, I'm really good with my non-action as long as things go well, right? When they don't go well, it's about me, maybe I'm not, etc. Right? So that's, that's how it becomes a practice. We look out for these and we, keep, and we keep on, and we have to have, this is really implicit in a lot of the points so far, have to have a lot of patience for this. This, is, this uh, lens is a guide to deep practice. And it can take us a very long way in meditation, in daily life, and then in our looking into our own depths. Thank you so much for your attention. Maybe let's close just by setting your own intention. Out of this talk, out of this exploration, what's my own intention as to how to bring or apply this in my own meditation, my own life, or anything that came out of the morning that's helpful? What's my intention? for the benefits of the morning to ourselves and beyond this hall, to all beings, both inside and outside of this hall. (laughs) 
All beings always includes us. Yay. Thank you again very kindly. To be continued. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.